I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, host of MedLife with Dr. Horton on CMAJ Podcasts. I'm a general internist and associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine and director of the Alan Kloss Health Humanities Program at the Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Today, I have the honor and privilege of speaking with Dr. Tate Shanafelt. Dr. Shanafelt is both a distinguished oncologist and one of the world's leading researchers on physician well-being and its impact on patient care. He's been the principal investigator of multiple pioneering studies demonstrating the link between physician well-being and quality of care. Formerly of the Mayo Clinic, where he led initiatives to counter burnout and improve physicians' fulfillment and sense of well-being, he now serves as Chief Wellness Officer of Stanford Medicine, as Associate Dean for the Stanford School of Medicine, and Director of the Stanford WellMD Center. He is joining me today in our studio at the University of Manitoba. Tate, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks, Jillian. Great to be here. So my first question... You were studying physician burnout long before it was recognized as a public health crisis. So can you start by talking about how you became interested in this work? It was a little bit of a a fluke, to be quite honest. I was a third-year internal medicine resident at the University of Washington and was on an inpatient rotation leading a team and preparing for a month of research with Dr. Anthony Bach, uh, an oncologist, uh, cancer communication expert who has been a, a career mentor for me. And Tony and I had met to plan what we were going to work on for this upcoming month. And he asked a lot of questions about what my interests were. And among the different things I listed was that I wanted to study the experience of residents. And he asked some probing questions. And I answered what I was observing in my team. And it was sort of that window of insight where I was still very close to the experience of the interns, but was now, uh, you know, two years uh, advanced and was watching the way they reacted to uh, the workload, the patients, uh, new admissions, and, uh, you know, observing some out-of-character type reactions to you know, caring for patients that I knew was what they had dedicated their career to and what, what they, what mattered most to them. And Tony uh, said, you know, I think you're just observing burnout. Uh, why do you care? And I said, because it's affecting the care we provide our patients. And so being a good mentor, Tony asked me my hypothesis and what I wanted to do with that. He helped assemble a team to do a small study and was one of the really early studies looking at links to quality of care. And that small study, when we published it, really became quite a lightning rod because it showed those links to patient care in a rigorously conducted study. And I remember... I often tell this anecdote uh, that uh, about a year later, I was uh, a fellow at the Mayo Clinic and I was riding the little shuttle bus that runs between our two hospitals uh, the the day the study came out. And on the radio, uh, Paul Harvey, which is sort of a famous national broadcaster, came on and said, you know, study from the University of Washington shows links between physician burnout and and patient care. And I was, it was a bit of an out-of-body experience uh, riding on this bus saying, that's our study. And I remember reflecting, you know, some of these things we've known about for a long time. And why was this small study unfunded by a resident uh, 
galvanizing some national attention and conversation. And it was because we had approached it in a scientifically rigorous way in the way we studied this that gave us different and new insights. And so things really just snowballed from there. Mayo uh, asked me to initiate uh, a longitudinal study of the residents at Mayo that's actually to this day still going on. A number of professional societies started asking uh, that I would help lead some studies uh, on their behalf. And as that body of evidence grew, in about 2007, our chair of medicine at Mayo, uh, Nick LaRusso at the time, was preparing to retire and said that as a parting gift, if you will, to the department, he wanted to start a program on physician well-being and asked me to develop a proposal for him of what that should look like and what resources it would require which we did. And then Nick supported that. And so uh, I guess almost 12 years ago, we began starting to study this through a system and organization lens and to begin doing intervention studies. Had two wonderful partners, Dr. Lottie Derby, Dr. Colin West, who have been on this journey along with me for, uh, I guess, almost 16 years or 17 years. And uh, together, we were able to, to really take a systematic and comprehensive approach to this problem. So you have changed our understanding of burnout in part by applying those same rigorous research standards that we apply to everything else in medicine, as you said. So how can an individual, perhaps who's listening to this podcast right now, diagnose their own burnout in a way that's more than subjective? It's a great question. And I think the simple answer is it's fairly hard. And what we've shown is that our ability to self-calibrate is not particularly accurate and that oftentimes... We buy into a narrative that these are demanding and stressful times for physicians, and I'm feeling it too, and I'm no different than everybody else. And that we perpetuate that both when it's an accurate characterization as well as when it starts to become inaccurate and we're starting to be at a more extreme outlier position and actually need additional help we perpetuate the narrative and don't get it. I think there are a variety of ways to do it. There are some uh, online self-assessment tools that you can take and get confidential uh, anonymous feedback. I think another helpful way is to have a colleague, if you uh, are able, have a close colleague, to just check in. What are you observing in me uh, in the clinic or in practice over the last month or two? Sometimes a partner, a spouse, or a close friend, you might be able to ask a similar question. I, I think that's actually a very helpful skill is to identify someone in your life who you can say, would you be that observer and accountability partner for me? And could I check in with you once every three months to sort of have that external set of eyes? I, I do think for many of us, it's just that uh, internal reflection when we start to feel a loss of direction, loss of meaning, starting to feel that I'm not sure this work I'm doing really matters. And objectively, I think if we take a step back at the work that we have to do as physicians, it unequivocally does matter. And so when we start to feel that way, I think that's also one of the clues often for the individual that maybe it's time to take a step back and think about small adjustments to, to reverse that trend. So you've studied and written extensively on best organizational practices to address burnout. And are there particular organizational interventions that you believe yield the biggest return? I do. Uh, I, I think that 
the leadership of our first line leaders across the organizations is the longest lever that we have to address this problem. And we have shown that in, in studies that that is really a powerful force for professional fulfillment. Are the behaviors those individuals, typically physicians, leading a clinic or a division, overseeing 15, 20 people, uh, I think often underestimate how profound their impact is on those in the unit as well as the cohesion of the unit and the sense that the unit might feel that they're facing great external challenge, but they have each other's back and they'll get through it together. And so how, how do we help those most junior leaders understand the importance of their role, receive feedback on how effectively they're engaging in some of these behaviors, develop uh, and build skill in those behaviors, and implement that across an organization. I think that is really one of the most powerful pieces an organization can take on. I think some of the uh, other key things is to fix what we have often called as the pebbles in the shoe or the local broken window. We often focus so exclusively on some of the cosmic problems that we miss some of the local friction points that just irritate people every day. And to the extent we can identify those that are viewed as important by the consensus of the local unit and then empower them to develop an approach uh, to address it and try the new way can be very um, engaging and give people a sense of uh, possibility and that progress can be made. I, I intentionally list that second because I think it's often predicated on the local leader, uh, both bringing their team together in that way, having the confidence to let go of the reins a little bit and let them uh, try some redesign and to implement it. And that even if it doesn't have the full desired effect, people feel that they have the ability to improve the, the local environment. I think the other two things that are often most impactful are attending to community and how we, uh, in a deliberate and intentional way, allow the community of colleagues in a unit to support each other. And, uh, you know, I often say that uh, this has always been emotionally demanding work that we do, but that in years past, we often were more connected to our colleagues than we are now. And I think there are many variables that contribute to that, um, higher volumes of patients, intrusion of technology into work, the fact that we may watch our grand rounds online from our office uh, rather than come to the room and sit next to a colleague, just many variables. But uh, we need that support of our colleagues, and we need to think about how we're deliberately re-engineering that variable into our practice. So I, I think those are three things that are worth thinking about. The, the local leader uh, addressing some of those local improvement opportunities, sort of a fix one thing and repeat, and then building community in between colleagues are a place to start. Mm -hmm. You know, on a related point, one of the many things that you've helped to illuminate in the literature is that burnout relates not only to the amount of work, but also to a sense of a loss of meaning. So how in your view, should we be addressing that on the individual level as well as the institutional level? That's a great, great question. And I, I think it's one that we're still trying to understand what are the practical approaches and tactics to try to drive that. I often think that we're fortunate in that 
we don't have to create meaning as a profession. You know, some professions, it might be really hard to connect the work you do with something that matters on a societal level or to the benefit of other human beings. Um, for us, it's really a question of recognizing meaning rather than creating it. And here again, there just are many distractions in our daily work that we often get focused on the things that aren't working well and miss the very powerful encounter we had with Mrs. Smith at 10.50 to 11 o'clock, which is probably the thing in your day that might be the most affirming uh, event of why you became a physician 20 years ago. Uh, but we race right through it and we miss it. And so how do we reconnect to some of those types of things? And I think there's some components that are personal mindfulness type approaches to attending to those things, recognizing them, having very practical rituals and tactics that we use to make sure we don't miss those. Sometimes it's even my wife and I just ask each other, what was the best thing in your day as our end of the day question? And I know that question's coming every day. So I'm looking for what, what am I going to share with Jackie tonight? Um, but then I think there is also these system layers to it as you're illustrating. I think there's that opportunity to connect with communities of colleagues and creating conversation around those type of events. Again, many formats, some more formal than others, things like Schwartz rounds and so forth are sometimes very formal ways to do it and can accomplish some of that. I think there's the role of the leader in that and having the leader really recognize what's this person's career ambition, what are the things that they're really finding meaning in and having a regular check-in, at least on an annual level around that, because what's most meaningful can evolve over the course of a career. In fact, it almost always does as we master things and want to take on new challenges. And having a leader who's regularly checking in can both help the individual stay attuned to what it is that their motivation is right now. It also allows the leader to know that and allow there to be alignment for the individual and the leader uh, attending to that. And so I think there are some things like that that are structural that we can try to build in um, at the system level as well. And, and then I guess the last thing I'll just say too is sometimes it's just creating opportunities for physicians to perhaps engage in storytelling or uh, the arts and humanity, uh, book clubs and so forth that, again, I think are these elements outside of medicine that really remind us of some of the nobility of the work that we do and uh, creating those type of opportunities in the practice environment is another channel that can help physicians reconnect to that meaning. I was reading a little bit about William Osler the other day and I was surprised to see that every night between 10 and 11 o'clock before bed, he devoted that hour of his night to reading humanities and literature and poetry. So kind of a good role model. It really is. I, you know, I, I remember in my own uh, medical school days, for whatever reason, I, you know, moved, I went to medical school at the University of Colorado. It was a, you know, new area. I was sort of building my new network of friends and support network. And of course, you're studying uh, long and at all hours. But I just sort of took on a new habit of uh, reading classic literature every single night before going to bed. And that after I had sort of made it through the first book, I had a goal of filling an entire window pane over my four years with reading sort of classical works. And 
I did that my whole four years and still have that collection of books. And, and I think, as you said, it, it just uh, it helps you interpret, I think, so much of what we do as scientists um, and as physicians through that broader lens. Uh, it's certainly been a helpful thing for me. Tate, can you tell me about the magic of the number 20%? Yeah, so we did a study in 2008 uh, in which we uh, were exploring how people allocate their professional work effort. And so we asked them what was the most meaningful aspect of work, let them identify that. We then measured how they spent their time in a variety of different activities. And the hypothesis underlying the study uh, was that variety was going to be the key, that as physicians we needed some time dedicated to patient care, some to education, mentorship, some to leadership, some to research or discovery or other quality improvement, you name it. And what was interesting that we found is that we were wrong and that the only thing that actually mattered with respect to burnout was how much time people spent in the area they had self-identified as most meaningful. And there was a dose effect there. Uh, up to 20%. So every 1% below 20% time dedicated to that most meaningful area, your risk of burnout increased. That persisted in the multivariate analysis. It was the dominant factor in the multivariate. But that once you got over 20%, you had sort of maximized that burnout reduction value. Uh, there was no value in getting to 50 or 75%. Um, and I think in a sense that was liberating because it's very hard to spend 50 or 75% time on the thing that you really have a passion for. Um, but getting to 20 is more achievable. And so I think that's an opportunity for each of us. And it begins by identifying what really is that thing I have a passion for today. And for many of us, we haven't thought about that for a while. We thought about it during an interview uh, for residency or medical school or our first job or the last job move or a promotion. But again, as we evolve and move through a career, that often also changes. And so really reflecting on that for a half hour or so and thinking about what I really want to do over the next couple of years or the next 10 and not necessarily holding yourself back by what the answer to that question was five years ago. Um, can really help us clue into that. And then we can say, how much time am I spending there? What would I need to do to grow that time? And it might be starting something new, developing a new skill set in training, um, working with leaders to um, begin taking on new responsibilities that might grow into more formal roles uh, and to maximize that possibility. I, I think it's interesting that once we discovered that, Folks have often pointed to other places in industry where uh, that principle has been implemented, not necessarily through evidence, but, you know, things like Google used to give all of their employees 20% time to, in essence, do whatever they wanted on company time. And it, what they created was company property. But Gmail and Google Maps were apparently discovered and developed through that discretionary time of employees, created billions of dollars of value for the company. But it was value created by liberating the talent and passion of their people. And so I think it's another one of these principles of how can we do that in medicine? Mm -hmm. A lot of healthcare organizations right now, of course, are hiring chief wellness officers. So in your view, what are the keys to making sure that that role is more than just a title? It's a really important question because 
if it is just a title or a figurehead, it will do nothing of value. Uh, I think that first and foremost, it needs to be an officer of the organization on the same footing as the chief medical officer, the chief financial officer, chief quality officer. And that means, you know, sitting at those tables and introducing and advocating for the welfare of physicians in other organizational decisions. I think it also involves helping develop the strategy and coordinating the plan of how this issue is going to be worked on at the system level. I think there's a danger that this is not the personal resilience officer, um, and they should not be devoting the majority of their time to standing up you know, only an extensive array of personal resilience offerings. There's a temptation to do that because those are quickly visible things. But the things that are going to make the biggest difference over the longer term in changing organizational culture and improving the efficiency of the practice environment require building relationships with other key leaders and operational leaders, challenging those leaders to think about things differently, finding ways to measure and track the efficiency of the practice environment, measure and iteratively improve some of those friction points and frustration points for physicians, and to use an improvement approach to drive that down. And so I think that those are the types of things that the wellness officer needs to be doing. And for an organization to set that person up for success, it's important that it isn't just an individual. They need to have a team that they're working with, much like the quality officer has a team, and that those individuals don't directly improve quality for the organization, but they assist, support, catalyze, provide resources and expertise to the clinical departments and hospital leaders to make their improvement efforts effective. And I think it's an uh, analogous approach. So, Tate, I have one last question. So for anyone who's listening right now and thinks or knows that their personal or professional life is being impacted by burnout, what is a first step right now that anyone can take? Yeah. So I think that realization is the first and most important thing. And I think the, the next step is to find someone you trust to have a conversation with about that, that you feel that you're struggling with that, and to um, think through it together with someone you trust. And that might be, again, a spouse. It might be a sibling. It might be uh, a colleague in the office uh, or a colleague that you trained with who you can be vulnerable with. And you know, oftentimes, again, when you first realize that, if you start really unpacking what's happening there, the, the level of distress and the way it's showing up in other parts of your life might be much deeper than you realized. And so I think having someone who can assist you as you think through what might be some tangible changes I need to make or what other help do I need to, to seek is important. Um, I think many organizations have a peer support program. I, I think that's another really helpful approach. Often, you know, trained colleagues who are a listening ear, who have some sort of coaching type skills, who are aware of what other resources are available and can be a sounding board that's confidential um, if it maybe is unsafe or too threatening to initially um, have that conversation with a colleague at work. But I think that it's taking a step 
and engaging someone you trust or a, a resource you trust to help think through where do I go from here. Um, I think sometimes we can make micro changes on our own, but oftentimes if there's not some level of being public and accountable uh, with, again, someone in your life of I'm going to make this change and um, will you help me follow through on that and can we check in on that um, is, is a helpful way to make progress. Well, Tate, I just want to say thank you so much, firstly, for being here with us today, but secondly, for all the years of work you have put in to bringing this issue to the forefront, and also for all of us as physicians, giving us a language and a vocabulary to identify the phenomenon. Thanks, Julian. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Tate Shanafelt, oncologist and director of the WellMD Center at Stanford Medicine and associate dean at the Stanford School of Medicine. Send your anonymous questions to MedLife with Dr. Horton, and I'll do my best to answer them in a future episode. You can find a link to the Google Forms page in this episode's description. If you'd like to hear more podcasts in this series, MedLife with Dr. Horton, you can find them as part of CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating. This podcast was made possible in part by the support of the Alan Kloss Health Humanities Program at the University of Manitoba. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton. Thank you for listening.